Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Ever since Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, bought Twitter for $44 billion in late April, Twitter has been in chaos. Musk has made and then withdrawn decisions, including trying to retract his offer to buy Twitter. He's fired executives, cut the number of full-time employees in half, and then realized maybe he'd gone too far and tried to hire back some people he just terminated. He's floated ideas for subscription services and for charging a fee to verify that your account is really yours, but those ideas were met with widespread opposition. The number of content moderators has been slashed. Hate speech on Twitter has increased. Musk offered to reinstate Trump on Twitter after polling Twitter users about whether to do it. Some of the responders may have been bots. My guest Casey Newton says Musk has been remaking Twitter in his own image. Newton is an independent tech journalist who covers the intersection of technology and democracy for his newsletter platformer, which is hosted by Substack. He also co-hosts the tech podcast Hard Fork with New York Times tech journalist Kevin Roos. From 2013 until 2020, when Newton started Platformer, he reported on tech for The Verge. We recorded our interview yesterday. Casey Newton, welcome back to Fresh Air. SpaceX and Tesla have been considered such big success stories, and credit has gone to Elon Musk. Twitter is showing a different side of him, indecisive, making decisions, then retracting them. Twitter is losing money and advertisers under his leadership. He's making decisions that are driving away Twitter users. Are you surprised by what kind of leader he's turned out to be as the owner of Twitter? You know, I really am. I had not paid a lot of attention to what Musk was doing at Tesla and SpaceX. But as you note, he was having a lot of success with those companies. And the Twitter that he inherited, while it had its challenges, was not a company in crisis. It made about $5 billion last year, has hundreds of millions of active users. And while it clearly needed to evolve, there was sort of no pressing need to blow it up and start over. And yet, from the moment that he stepped into that job, that seems to be exactly what he decided to do. He has now eliminated close to three quarters of the staff. He's implemented a bunch of ideas and then quickly reversed himself. And more than anything else, I think he's given the impression that rather than operating according to some set plan, he's really managing Twitter more by whims and what seems to him to be a good idea in the moment. And so that's led to a lot of chaos. Do you think Twitter is starting to reflect Elon Musk's politics? And what are his politics? <laughs> well, I think that in a lot of ways, he is um, a fairly conventional conservative. You know, he has adopted a lot of the uh, the views that have become mainstream among Republicans, such as that social networks are censoring uh, too much content, that free speech is at risk, that uh, there's sort of too much deference shown to people who say that they're experiencing uh, harassment or abuse or hate speech, and he wants to end those practices. So, you know, one of his first moves was to restore more than 60,000 accounts of people who had been banned from Twitter for breaking its rules. And I think that's sort of very much in keeping with this uh, conservative worldview that it should not be up to platforms to decide who can participate or sort of set the terms by which 
they, they might participate. Another way that we've seen Elon Musk's uh, more conservative views manifest is he's lately been having a lot of fun with what he's calling the Twitter files. The Twitter files had to do with a New York Post story from the 2020 election about Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, Twitter uh, and Facebook intervened to temporarily restrict the distribution of that story because it looked like it was part of a sort of hack and leak propaganda operation, which they were on high alert for, and they worried that somebody might be interfering with the election. Well, fast forward to today, now a lot of Republicans believe that the platforms themselves interfered in the election by not allowing that story to spread quite as rapidly as it might have otherwise. This is something that Elon Musk clearly believes, and he's now been releasing a bunch of internal documents. He shared them with a couple of other journalists who have been posting about them on Twitter, and this is essentially red meat for the uh, Republican base. Uh, you know, I would not be surprised if we saw hearings about this on the House of Representatives next year, right? So all these things are just sort of, um, you know, Elon uh, being a good conservative and riling up that base, and he has spent a lot of time since he took over Twitter doing just that. So in terms of whether Twitter may now be reflecting Elon Musk's politics, Musk replatformed over 60,000 people, including Donald Trump, who used Twitter to, you know, say mistruths, disinformation. This is a person who wants to cancel part of the Constitution and who also um, was responsible for a lot of hate speech on, on Twitter. And then, you know, Musk... Replatform Kanye West in spite of Kanye West's anti-Semitism, and then um, canceled the replatforming <laughs> in another kind of sudden change of mind. And of the sixty-four thousand people or so that Elon Musk brought back to Twitter, people who had been canceled because of violations of Twitter rules, including hate speech, you know, why would he want to bring back people who? We're responsible for hate speech. Hate speech is dangerous. It can it can really physically harm people. Um, so how how does that reflect, if at all, Musk's politics? So what he's said about his view on this subject is that he believes that as long as you have not broken the law, you should effectively have unfettered access to social platforms. That, uh, And this is just sort of a very um, glib understanding of free speech, I would say, where um, if you, uh, you should just sort of ha have the right to speech and almost nothing can take that away. And, you know, here in the United States, there's all sorts of horrible things that you can say. And under the First Amendment, you can't be prosecuted for those. Musk essentially wants to uh, bring that idea to this platform that he now owns. But I think it's worth talking a bit about why that isn't an approach taken by any other platform. And it's because most of us just don't want to be in rooms, whether they're real rooms or virtual rooms, with people who are preaching, you know, a gospel of hate, whether they're, you know, where they're spreading fictions or whether they're just sort of, you know, committing antisocial behavior. So there is this market. Or harassing you. Yeah, exactly. Right. If somebody's harassing you, you want to get out of there. And what I think that Musk and some of these other like right wing uh, platform commentators are missing is that there's a real market demand for this kind of basic content moderation, you know, and I just always sort of laugh because all of these guys, and it is most 
mostly guys, think of themselves as the smartest business people in the entire world, and they can't believe that you know what, what all these uh, woke liberals are are doing to to you know um, to these businesses, and yet. I think we're going to see over time that they're going to turn out to be, they're going to lose a lot of money on these platforms because they're not responding to what the market actually wants here, which is just basic content moderation. Hate speech has increased since Musk took over. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing examples of that? We have seen some studies that have said that. I would say that some analysts who I really respect have questioned the methodology of those accounts. And so I'm not willing to say definitively that we've seen a massive rise in hate speech. However, the fact that they've restored thousands of accounts of people who did get kicked off for hate speech, that is very real. And so I think we have to assume that if hate speech hasn't increased on Twitter yet, it likely is going to happen in the coming weeks and months. Do you think Elon Musk's public image has totally changed that he's seen now as being more indecisive and incompetent? You know, I really do. And, you know, I should say, I am somebody who, in a lot of ways, was really rooting for Elon Musk here. Twitter has had a history of mismanagement. You know, uh, two CEOs ago, it had a guy who was working two jobs at the same time. The, the company was really suffering as a result of that. And so I think like a lot of people, I hope that Elon, who'd had all this previous success, could come in and whatever the heck he was doing at Tesla and SpaceX, maybe, you know, sprinkle a little bit of, ma- of that magic on Twitter and the platform will become a better version of itself. And yet, unfortunately, after he took over, he continuously rejected the advice of people who'd worked at Twitter for, you know, five, 10 years, who were able to predict for him exactly what was going to happen if he took the steps that he took. Um, And he just kind of ignored those people and threw away their advice and fired them. And then he took these actions and then exactly what they predicted came true and he found himself in a lot of trouble. And that's the main reason why I think that Elon's reputation has taken a hit. It's not so much that he made mistakes, every CEO makes mistakes is that the effects of his actions were accurately predicted for him by his own employees, and he just ignored them every step of the way and has kind of continuously found himself in trouble. So I do think that that has changed the public conversation around what kind of leader he is. You know, you reported, you've spoken to, you know, current and former Twitter employees and interviewed uh, a Twitter engineer about his experiences working there and his experiences being laid off from there uh, or terminated. Um, and what you learned was that, you know, part of the uh, uh, engineering staff was asked to make, you know, a very technical presentation about how Twitter operates to Elon Musk. And they were kind of shocked about how little Musk really understood about the technical end of the operation. Yeah, that's right. You know, so something about Elon Musk is that he sort of worships at the altar of the engineer. And as soon as he took over Twitter, basically job one for him was to bring in a bunch of his uh, engineers from Tesla and some of his other companies to try to figure out who's a good engineer at Twitter. And uh, more recently, they've started to do these impromptu uh, code reviews, they call them, where they sort of summon you to an office and they say, you know, show me every uh, line of code you've written over the past week. So he, he really styles himself 
himself as this very technical person. And yet, as you note, we have talked with folks who have said that indeed, when they go to show him that code, he isn't really understanding what they're saying. Now, that's not true in every case, and I'm not saying that Elon Musk can't write a line of code. But for somebody who styles himself as this, uh, you know, brilliant engineer, um, I have talked with Twitter employees who have been surprised at the the lack of depth of his technical knowledge. What's left of Twitter's staff? I think he fired about 20% of his of his full-time staff and 80% of contractors. The numbers were even higher than that. And it's happened in, in several rounds. So it's sort of hard to keep up. There was an initial cut of about 50% to the core full-time employees. Then, as you note, about 80% of contractors got let go. Then he sent out an email to everyone saying, hey, uh, you know, th- things life is about to get even more difficult around here. And you need to be extremely hardcore if you want to stay. And if you want to stay, like click this button. Well, after that, a lot of people chose to take a severance package instead. So we now believe that Twitter has around 2,000 employees or fewer, and that's down from about 8,000 when he took over. Well, you know, the the first time you were on our show, you were talking about content moderators on Facebook and how many of them get PTSD because they're these are the people who have to look at all the like beheading videos and the murder videos and all the most horrible videos that Twitter, that Facebook would be taking down because they're making the decision about whether to take these down or not. Um, and so, uh, you know, it sounded like a really stressful job. What's left of content moderators now on Twitter? Because on the one hand, tens of thousands of Twitter users who were deplatformed, who were taken down from Twitter, have been reinstated by Musk. And, you know, a certain percentage of them, I don't know what percentage, were taken down because of hate speech, because of behavior that wasn't tolerated on on Twitter. So you're adding people who are responsible for hate speech, and you're firing people (laughs) who are content moderators. So what's left of the content moderation crew? So, you know, Twitter will not tell us how many content moderators it has left. Um, the company no longer has a communications department. So, you know, we're, we reporters are all used to just, you know, emailing our, our friends over in PR and uh, with Twitter, that's no longer possible. So we don't have a good answer to that question. What we, what you know, what I've reported and have come to understand is that the vast majority of the content moderators have been let go. And I have friends and and sources who work in a, a field that they call trust and safety. And they're basically the people who work at these companies to try to keep the platform safe. And they've been pointing out to me, like, look, if you search for this hashtag, which, um, you know, used to sort of be blocked on Twitter, didn't used to return very many results, it's now starting to show some really problematic stuff. So there is absolutely concern that Twitter is filling up with the sort of stuff that content moderators would have been able to eliminate if they were still around. You know, at the same time, uh, Twitter's like rules, you know, every platform sets rules for what you can and can't do on the platform. Like those haven't changed at all. If you, you know, Google the Twitter community standards, you'll find them that there have been no changes since Musk took over. And yet, as you note, he just restored, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, neo-Nazis and other people to the platform. So like, what are the rules on Twitter? You know, who knows? We really are just in a moment of pure chaos. You know, you describe what's happened at Twitter to employees as a purge. Um, An engineer who you, a Twitter engineer who you interviewed was fired and got this email. We regret to inform you that your employment is terminated effective immediately. Your recent behavior has violated company policy. What was the violation? 
Well, uh, this person didn't know because it wasn't clear what policy they were referring to. You know, one of the the waves of uh, people being let go happened as Elon and his associates noticed that Twitter workers were being somewhat critical of his behavior, both in the company's Slack channels and sometimes even publicly on Twitter. And they just started to get rid of those people. And they would just say, well, you know, you violated company policy. And, you know, the, the sources I spoke with sort of were throwing up their hands and saying, what what policy are you talking about? You know, at, at Twitter, some people hear that and they say, well, look, if you were making fun of the boss, of course you got fired. That would happen anywhere. And that's, you know, true so far as it goes. But at Twitter, they had this culture of always criticizing power. You know, they, they believe that it sort of made the company stronger if they could question decisions being made by their leaders in public. And so this really did come as a huge shock to them. And I actually think some of them are probably going to sue the company over it because they feel like uh, it was a wrongful termination. Musk became obsessed with the idea that his employees might sabotage Twitter. Um, is that a sign? Do you think that's a sign of paranoia, paranoia or a legitimate concern? I think it was mostly paranoia. You know, most of the folks who I've been speaking with at Twitter over the past couple months uh, cared about the service a lot. And in fact, the reason why they were staying on in spite of a lot of chaos all around them was because they wanted the Twitter service to stay up. They they believed in it. Um, But Musk really, particularly, I think, as he started to see criticisms of himself and his associates and Slack and on Twitter, he really did start to believe some of these people are going to go rogue and somehow uh, sabotage the site. Um, and so he uh, he undertook a, a purge. Are there employees who think that Musk is sabotaging tw- Twitter in his attempt to blow it up? There are. And remake it, you know, and remake it his way? Yeah. Well, I think the employees that I've spoken to believe that the motivation is likely more financial. You know, as you'll recall, he spent $44 billion on Twitter. Almost everyone agrees that that was way more than the service was worth. The price crashed basically as soon as he bought it in in the public stock markets, along with all the other tech stocks. And so now the company's loaded up with about $13 billion in debt. It has to pay a billion dollars a year just in interest to, to service that debt. And some folks believe that what Elon really wants to do is just blow the whole thing up so that he can restructure that debt and make Twitter cheaper um, after all. I will say, I don't really buy that. I don't think that there is a master plan. I think Elon's waking up every day and just deciding what seems like the best thing to do that day and, uh, and that he's not trying to sabotage the site. But is it an idea out there that's going around among employees? It is. So one of the changes that uh, Musk told employees he was making was that they could no longer work remotely, that they had to come into the office. And I think a lot of employees were upset by that, particularly ones who might have, you know, taken the job with the understanding that they could stay at home and take care of, you know, children or 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 parents or grandparents or whatever their reason was to want to work at home, and that suddenly the ground rules were being changed. Now, a lot of offices changed their ground rules about working from home. But how did that go over at Twitter And how did Musk respond to the negative reaction? Well, 
you know, as you can imagine, this is an extraordinarily disruptive thing for people who had taken these jobs, assuming that they would be able to work wherever they wanted to. Um, so a lot of folks don't work near one of the Twitter offices, and they received an email that said, essentially, within a day, you need to be able to report to Twitter headquarters. And unless you have either a really good reason or you are an exceptional talent, we're not going to let you work remotely. And of course, you know, how do you define an exceptional talent? There was sort of no no further information on, on who might qualify under that plans. And so people did start to, to make other plans. You know, that, that was sort of a big reason why some people quit the company because ultimately they just decided, you know, it, it, this wasn't worth um, uprooting their entire lives for. For other people, though, I think it will probably be the basis of some sort of lawsuit because they will say, look, you, you know, you can't sort of unilaterally tell me that I just have to show up, you know, after hiring me to do this job that you told me that I could do remotely. So um, that's kind of how it played out among employees. You know, for Elon, I think his perspective is anything he does that leads an unhappy person to quit is good. Like right now, he's in a mode of trying to figure out who uh, is loyal to him at Twitter um, and who he can sort of count on to, to be a good engineer. And everything else is just kind of noise and he doesn't really worry about it. Well, let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Casey Newton, who reports on tech issues for his newsletter, Platformer, which is hosted on Substack. We'll talk more about the chaos at Twitter ever since Elon Musk took over in late October after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to the interview I recorded yesterday with Casey Newton, who writes about the intersection of technology and democracy for his newsletter, Platformer, which is hosted by Substack. He also co-hosts the tech podcast Hard Fork with New York Times reporter Kevin Roos. Newton has been writing about the changes and the chaos at Twitter since Elon Musk bought it for $44 billion in late October. So is part of Elon Musk's goal in slashing the staff at Twitter by about 50% for full-time employees, is part of the goal to like cut costs? Yes, it is. He spent a lot of money on Twitter and he needs to figure out how to make the site profitable. You know, for most of its history, Twitter has not been a profitable company and it arguably had hired too many people. You know, I think even if Elon Musk had not taken over the company, Twitter probably would have undergone some pretty significant layoffs this year. I think it probably would have been closer to 25%. But as he tries to figure out what the next incarnation of Twitter should be, he wants to really get rid of a lot of employees because that uh, that's his single biggest cost. Musk said that Musk said that the financial situation at Twitter was dire and the company could even go bankrupt. What's the upside of saying that publicly? <laughs> you know, I I wish I knew. I have since learned that he apparently has said a version of this at some of his other companies as well. He seems to like leaning on the drama of that a little bit to rally the troops. That's not how I would rally the troops, but I think he wants to sort of inspire uh, in employees a sense of fear that unless they work really hard and do their best, uh, the company and then their job might go away. But I also think it gives him cover to do a lot of the things that we've seen, right? Getting rid of absolutely huge numbers of people, sometimes without even fully understanding what they did to the point that you have to go beg them to come back after you've gotten rid of them, right? But if you tell people like, hey, we might go bankrupt, all of a sudden, a lot of 
options are on the table that might otherwise not be. One of Musk's strategies that seems to have backfired is dealing with verification. Can you describe what verification is and what Twitter's policy had been before Musk took over? Yeah, so Twitter started a verification policy in 2009, and the basic idea was that it needed a way to verify that the owner of an account was who they said it was. So if you were a politician, a journalist, or a celebrity, if you were really that person, Twitter would verify that, and then you would get this little blue check mark on your profile. That's how it had always worked. Um, Musk came along and said he wanted verification to be open to a much wider number of people, which, by the way, I thought was a pretty good idea. I think there are a lot of good reasons why you might want people to be able to optionally verify their identity on Twitter. It can just sort of be good for the service overall. But he made one really bad decision, which was that not only did he offer everyone a verification badge, it was no longer actually connected to any sort of idea of verification. All you needed to do was pay $8. You could create any account. You would get that little badge. And so people started to pretend to be brands. They started to be celebrities. They, they started to pretend to be Elon Musk. And that that same blue verification badge that had only ever meant you are who you say you are, all of a sudden now meant I have $8. And so <laughs> there was two days of just absolute chaos on Twitter as people sort of raced to see how much fun they could have with this ridiculous new system before, predictably, he pulled the plug and said they would start over. And what, one of the consequences of that was that he lost a lot of advertisers. Can you, can you explain why? Yeah, so advertisers are obsessed with what they call brand safety, which is basically just the idea that any of their ads are not going to appear next to something horrible, but also that they counted on verification to let people know that their brand was what it what it said it was. So, you know, one of the most famous examples from this disaster is that someone created a fake account pretending to be Eli Lilly and then saying insulin is free. And then Eli, the real Eli Lilly had to come along and say, oh, no, no, we're still going to you know massively overcharge you for insulin. So in the wake of this, you have a lot of advertisers saying, you know what, why are we spending money to be here? No one is even going to be able to tell if our brand is the real brand. And so you start to see this huge pullback in advertising uh, as people just decide, you know what, we're going to sit this out for a while while we wait to see what Elon is going to do. Twitter's largest brand advertiser, is or was Apple. Apple pulled their advertising. Has Apple come back? Yes. So there was a summit between uh, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, and Elon Musk a couple days after Elon had started what seemed like a pretty unwise war against the company. And Elon Musk has since tweeted that Apple has resumed its advertising as normal. It's really important for Twitter. Apple is its single largest brand advertiser, so losing them would have been really hard on Twitter. It seems for now like that has been put to rest. Musk recently tweeted his thanks to returning advertisers. How many returned and why did they return? Um, I'm still trying to learn the answer to this question. I don't understand what has happened on Twitter in the past two weeks that would make any advertiser say, now it feels safe. You still have all of these uh, 
you know, accounts that have been brought back from the dead to say terrible things. You still do not have a clear answer on what their verification program is going to look like going forward. And so I don't really understand why these folks have come back. And I don't understand how many have come back. You know, um, as I've been reporting on this, you know, my understanding is that Twitter's ad sales are still down from where they were expected to be. We're in the middle of what should be their busiest season. Not only is it the holidays, but the World Cup is traditionally one of the busiest times on Twitter, uh, you know, every every four years. And I think the advertisers are still down. So there's still some things I don't know there. Um, but I would honestly be shocked if, you know, two months from now, Twitter's ad business was looking robust. Well, let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Casey Newton, who writes about tech for his newsletter, Platformer, which is hosted by Substack. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Casey Newton, who writes about the intersection of technology and democracy for his newsletter, Platformer. He's been reporting on the chaos at Twitter ever since Elon Musk bought it in late October. So getting back to the idea that Musk is kind of... uh, blowing up Twitter to remake it his way, he's losing so much money in the process. I mean, other ways that he's losing money, because you, you've pointed this out, is replatforming people and making all these changes. They're really expensive. It, it, it requires a lot of engineering uh, changes in order to make these changes on Twitter. Um, and plus, the, there's no longer as many engineers there now. So um, it's almost like he's sabotaging himself in trying to remake Twitter. Yeah, I think, you know, for some leaders, um, it's not a good idea unless they came up with it, right? And so people who worked at Twitter had all sorts of ideas about how you could improve the service, make it more profitable. Um, Elon has gotten rid of most of those people, and he's fixated on a few core ideas that he thinks are going to be spectacular. Uh, Subscriptions is probably the biggest one, although there are others. And he's just going to go for it. You know, this is probably one of the most self-confident people in the entire world, right? Elon Musk uh, does not have imposter syndrome. (laughs) He wakes up every day convinced that he is the only person who knows how to fix this company. And, you know, as me, for, for me, an observer, I just sort of sit back and think like, none of this is working, you know? And, and so to me, the question is, will he ever acknowledge that other people have better ideas for this company than he does? Or will he just sort of continue to charge ahead with his own ideas, you know, regardless if, if they're successful or not? I'm wondering, like, did he ever announce projects and then like halt them or withdraw them at uh, SpaceX or Tesla? Did he have a reputation for doing that there? Yeah, I mean, sort of the most famous one at Tesla is um, Tesla has some autonomous driving capabilities. Elon calls it full self-driving, even though, you know, automotive experts, I think, quibble with whether it is actually full self-driving. But the rollout has just been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And, you know, now, you know, who knows sort of when it will ever come. So, yeah, there is definitely a history of these companies and making grandiose promises and then not following up, right? You might also remember the Cybertruck, a big flashy truck that he announced and, you know, began taking pre-orders for. You know, my understanding is the Cybertruck has still not shipped. So there's a lot of um, announcing and then delaying in Elon's world. You know, you also write that some CEOs are actually rooting for Musk. Why? 
Well, you know, during the last decade, tech workers gained a lot of power, right? As the industry grew, engineers were in short supply, highly in demand, became very well compensated. And in order to compete for them, uh, companies would offer them all these famous perks, right? So, you know, on-site daycare and laundry, and we'll send a barber to your office, right? And that was really great for the tech workers. And the tech workers went a step further and they started talking about issues like, you know, this company isn't really very diverse. We should try to make it more diverse. Or, you know, it seems like our company um, has a lot of dealings with the Chinese government. That, that makes us uncomfortable, right? So you saw walkouts, you saw, you saw worker organizing. And for the tech workers, I think that was a really positive thing. But there's this whole class of CEOs who regards that as a terrible mistake. And I think what you see in a lot of the CEOs rooting for Elon, which they're doing mostly quietly and behind the scenes, is they love the idea of a CEO who can begin to claw back some of that power, right? Someone who can put workers in what they see as their proper place, which is sort of silently working away for whatever the boss wants and no longer bringing up issues like diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, complaining that they're not getting enough perks, right? This really is... I believe, about clawing back some of those gains that workers have made over the past 10 years and restoring this sort of more traditional, everybody just do what the boss says kind of work experience. You're still on Twitter and you cover tech, including Twitter. You have every reason to be on Twitter. Um, So beyond your work as a journalist, why do you feel like you need Twitter? You know... Twitter is really the only social network I ever felt like I was good at. You know, I think I'm I'm not pretty enough for Instagram. I'm not a good enough dancer for TikTok. <laughs> like, I work in text. And Twitter has just always been a great place for people who like to write sentences. I've often thought that it's the funniest social network. You know, people just wake up every day and they just tell jokes on Twitter in a way that makes me laugh, right? It's like you don't often laugh intentionally when you go on LinkedIn. So... I've just always loved that about Twitter. And I hope that, you know, if Twitter doesn't survive all of this, that there is still something Twitter-like in the world for those of us who like to write and read sentences. Do you think there's a chance that Twitter won't survive? You know... I try not to be too excitable on this point, because on one hand, I look at everything that's happened and I think, well, how could it survive? (laughs) Like, none of this seems like this is uh, sustainable to me. You know, but at the same time, you know, Yahoo still exists. Uh, There are all sorts of websites from, you know, even the dot-com era that are still around in one form or another. So I think that Twitter will probably still be around in some form for some time to come. However, I also think that there's probably never been a better time to start a Twitter competitor. I do think that there's an opportunity for folks who understand what is powerful about Twitter to come in, rebuild it, uh, probably change some things, probably not make it exactly like Twitter, but just sort of do it in a sort of straightforward, normal, less chaotic way than Musk is doing. And I think they might find some success. So that's sort of one of the big things I'm looking for in 20. 2023 is who seizes that opportunity and how well do they do? You've also been writing about two cases that the Supreme Court will decide next year that you say could make life more difficult for tech platforms without doing much to address the harm that those platforms create. And this has to do with 
people who are uh, suing platforms for saying that the platforms and what they posted encouraged terrorism and may have helped lead to terrorist attacks. In one case, the plaintiff's family member was killed in an ISIS attack. Um, so uh, tell us what the basic premise of these lawsuits are. Yeah, so, you know, in the United States, we have um, this uh, important law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Acts, and it protects platforms from liability in most cases from what their users post. So even if you post something really terrible on a platform, generally speaking, you cannot sue a platform over that. What makes these cases interesting, particularly um, one of them, uh, the Gonzalez case, is that the Gonzalez case is the first time the Supreme Court has agreed to take a case that could limit Section 230. And specifically, what the Gonzalez case is saying is that uh, Google and YouTube should be held accountable for the videos that it recommended to people uh, about ISIS uh, and, and sort of recruiting people to ISIS. So why is that a big deal? Well, YouTube recommends millions and millions, if not billions of videos to people. And if it is going to be legally liable for every video that it promotes, that is going to be terrifying to the company because much of the modern internet, most of the platforms that we use are all built on things being recommended to us. And platforms have never before had to worry that what they recommend could get them into legal trouble. So I guess the question is a recommendation free speech? Is it a free speech issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I have spoken with First Amendment scholars who believe that recommendations are absolutely speech and that it goes against our understanding of the First Amendment to suggest that a corporation could not say, watch this video, because in a lot of ways, that doesn't seem very different from a, a publisher of a newspaper telling you to read this article, right? Um, but at the same time, we know that there are voices on the Supreme Court, led by Clarence Thomas, who have argued that Section 230 gives platforms too much protection, and that it's time to start clawing some of those protections back. So scholars are really watching this case um, because there's not, um, we just really don't know how this one's going to go. If the plaintiffs win and platforms like Google and YouTube are held responsible for recommending videos or text, um, that would be in conflict with laws in Florida and Texas that prevent social media platforms from taking down posts because of content. Can you explain the predicament that platforms would be in if the plaintiffs win the Supreme Court cases, but a case comes up in Florida or Texas? <laughs> yeah. And so these Florida and Texas laws that were passed this year essentially seek to make content moderation illegal. And this is very much in the Elon Musk school of thinking, right, which is that we should just sort of have free speech and nothing else. And so, as you know, we could be in this world where platforms will be forced to carry speech, including hate speech, in places like Texas and Florida because it will be illegal to remove speech. But then if they recommend that speech via some sort of algorithm, they could also then be held legally liable for recommending that thing, which they are forced to carry and are not allowed to remove. So... I, you know, I talk to the people who work on this stuff at platforms, 
And they have no idea how they would comply with these laws. They're completely at a loss. Well, let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Casey Newton, who writes about tech for his newsletter platform. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. A related issue to the issue we've been talking about, about the responsibility of social media to um, have content moderation, TikTok is facing lawsuits about things like the blackout challenge. Would you describe what the blackout challenge is and what these lawsuits are saying? Yeah, so, you know, this is um, a really dangerous stunt that's, you know, been around since I was a kid, where kids will encourage one another to sort of use household objects to uh, choke themselves unconscious, to then experience the adrenaline rush of suddenly regaining that consciousness. Um, it has proven to be particularly dangerous on TikTok, um, in part, I think, just because it looks fun. You know, kids see uh, kids doing this. Of course, in the videos, everyone comes right back awake and they are laughing and giggling and you look over, you know, on the right side of the screen and the video is getting lots of likes and it just sort of seems like everybody's having a good time. In reality, of course, this is a really dangerous practice. And there was a wonderful investigation um, in Bloomberg Business Week by a reporter named Olivia Carville recently who went into the, um, the many lives that have been lost according to this challenge. And now some folks are starting to sue uh, TikTok saying the company should have done a better job removing those videos before they could be seen by kids who, in many cases, were under the age of 13 and kids are not supposed to be using social networks uh, before they turn 13. So what's the state of these lawsuits now? They are in process. I think it's relatively early. And, you know, this will be one where the platform will say, because of Section 230, you can't sue us for what was on our platform. Um, and one of the reasons I have my eye on those cases is because of these other lawsuits that are before the Supreme Court that could potentially remove some of these protections from the platform. So, for example, if TikTok is found to have recommended videos to one of these uh, you know, poor kids who died doing this challenge, that could potentially become the basis for uh, a lawsuit against TikTok that uh, actually you know, goes all the way to trial. What's TikTok's approach to content moderation? TikTok moderates content quite aggressively, and I think it's probably fair to say that they moderate it more aggressively than any other platform. So one of the things that Bloomberg reported, which I hadn't known before, was that whenever a video on TikTok gets about 3,000 views, it gets sent to a human moderator who looks at it just to make sure that it is not too dangerous. Um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're not doing that, right? You know, they have other moderation systems in place, but they're not getting eyes on every piece of content when it crosses that, that threshold of views. And I think one of the really tragic things about this story is that even when you're doing that, you're still missing videos that may have under 3,000 views that, for whatever reason, are still getting recommended to these kids. And I think it just goes to show that when you run a global scale social network, there are just going to be harms associated with this. And we need to keep thinking through how we can do a better job uh, preventing that really harmful stuff from reaching vulnerable kids. Um, since we spent a lot of time talking about Twitter, what do you want from social media now? 
2022 going on 2023. And how different is that from what you wanted when um, you first started using Twitter and Facebook? You know, I love that question because it took me such a, a long time to figure out what my answer to it was. I think what I've decided is that I want the internet to be as good for everyone else as it has been for me. You know, the internet is a place where I have learned to make friends. It's where I've been able to express myself. I was able to build something of a following and I was able to turn that into a business, which has now given me this wonderful life. And it's all because of the way that these social networks can connect uh, us to audiences that are like-minded, who, who think that we're interesting. And in order for that to happen, those places need to be safe. Uh, they need to make me feel comfortable speaking. Um, they need to get good at recommending me to people who might be interested in me, right? And, and so that's really what I want, right? I want all those systems and mechanisms in place so that if you're just kind of a, a good citizen of the world and you want to meet people who share your interests and maybe you even want to make a little money on the internet, you should be able to find those people and you should be able to have those tools. I think 10 or 12 years ago when I started using Twitter really intensely, I just thought of it as like kind of a fun thing. You know, I thought, well, you know, I'll paste a link here to something that I wrote and hopefully some people will read it. But over the past 10 years, we've seen how powerful it can be um, for good reasons as well as bad. And my hope is that, you know, as the world continues to evolve, we really keep pushing hard on those good uses of the internet because there are a lot of them. And while it's in the nature of us as journalists to focus on everything that's going wrong, in my everyday life, like I live a way that it, it can go right. So that's how I think about that. Casey Newton, it's been a pleasure to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Casey Newton reports on tech issues for his newsletter, Platformer, which is hosted on Substack. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show... I'm Terry Gross.